everybody. Welcome back. We're having a fun conversation right here. The book and right there is the book. Oh no, over there. Another gospel. This book is a fantastic resource by Elisa Childers discussing her lifelong, this lifelong Christian seeking truth in response to progressive Christianity. It comes out October 6th, next week. We're recording it on, uh, what is this? September 28th. So it's coming out soon. So definitely this is something you can check out if you like our conversation today. But maybe you're here because you uh, maybe have been challenged by these kind of ideas of progressive Christianity, of deconstructing uh, core biblical beliefs of what we believe about Jesus or the Bible or God or the resurrection and these different topics. Maybe you're someone who's gone through it and you're trying to figure out where you stand on these issues, what you think the Bible really teaches, uh, whether that's you or your friend is dealing with it, or maybe you just want to be prepared so that you can help someone who possibly is going through it, or you just want a stronger faith, this conversation hopefully hopefully is for you. And this is the weekly show where we challenge, where I challenge you to think deeper about Christianity, the Christian worldview, thinking about the issues of culture and scripture, and hopefully making a defense for a solid faith. And again, my name is Ryan Pauly. So joining me is Elisa Childers, the author of Another Gospel. She is a formerly award-winning CCM um, musician with Zoe Girl. But now she is a podcaster, a speaker, a writer. Uh, she writes at elisachilders.com. And so, Elisa, let me get you here. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Ryan. It's great to be with you. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, it's fun to have you on. I loved reading this. I have been, I guess, following your material for some time, as I heard you speak about three or four years ago for the first time, and you kind of telling your story. And I'm so excited to have your story in print, uh, something to share with other people because I think it is an incredible story as we'll get into uh, here in a moment. So thank you for just taking the time to to do what you do and thank you for your ministry. Oh, well, and I th thank you for your ministry. I remember listening to an interview you did. It has to be three about three years ago. And so, yeah, I've been aware of what you're doing for a long time and I'm a fan of what you're doing as well, Ryan. So it's great to be with you. <laughs> yeah, it's always fun kind of, this is the first time I guess we've really connected in, in yeah. this kind of way. And so I, when I reach out to you, it's like, hey, I'm Ryan Polly. here's what I do. And so, you know, we know of each other, but haven't really connected. So it's fun getting yeah. uh, to connect. Now, I guess I want to start with clearing up maybe some possible confusion off the very beginning. Uh, when I interviewed Bobby Conway a little while ago, on a little time ago on his book, the fifth gospel, he, without people opening the book, just got reamed by saying, there's a yeah. pastor suggesting there's a fifth gospel. How dare he? I just want to make sure people don't tune out right away seeing this book, another gospel. Are you saying there is this another gospel, maybe Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or something else uh, that's <laughs> out there? <laughs> that is a great question. And I'm actually really glad you asked that. Yes, I'm not trying to preach another gospel in this book. Uh, what I'm actually trying to do is expose a false gospel that has been infiltrating the church for quite a while now, although it's really gained a lot of traction and momentum, I would say, especially just in the last maybe decade. And it's a movement called Progressive Christianity. And so my story interacts with Progressive Christianity on a lot of different points. And I tell that story in the book. So yeah, we're not trying to preach another gospel. We're trying to expose another gospel. <laughs> yeah. So maybe just right at the get-go, let's get some definitions kind of underway. Um, when we talk about progressive Christianity, um, what are we talking about here? 
So progressive Christianity is a movement of Christians that are coming up and out of the evangelical church. And essentially, they're they're not just shifting their views on cultural issues like same-sex marriage, although they are changing their views on same-sex marriage and maybe pro-life issues like abortion. But they're also questioning what we would consider to be just cardinal essential doctrines of the Christian faith, like the atonement of Jesus, what Jesus accomplished on the cross, the physical resurrection of Jesus. There's a, sort of a different view of the Bible in the progressive church, and this is what allows them to redefine terms and uh, essentially redefine historic doctrines where uh, they don't view the entire Bible as the Word of God or as a uh, internally cohesive whole where it's telling the same story from Genesis to Revelation. They would view the Bible uh, much along the lines of perhaps secular uh, academics who would say there are contradictions in the Bible and it doesn't it doesn't agree with itself. And so they're sort of taking some of that secular uh, historical criticism type scholarship uh, and trying to put that in uh, in line with a Christian faith. And along with that, it's just going to come kind of, I, I guess, a flyover view. You could say progressive Christians aren't really united around a beliefs or creeds, but more around behavior. And so that's why you can have two progressive Christians that might not agree on the resurrection, but they're okay to be in unity together because it's just really not about what you believe. Mm. That's really good to kind of point out is, is, so it's more of what we are maybe not necessarily against, but um, we're not quite sure about these things uh, rather than a set set of doctrines that they're going to be following. Yeah. In fact, Doubt and agnosticism is sort of viewed as um, a, a real, a good thing. Like you want to be doubting, you want to be in some kind of a process of deconstructing your faith. If you land on absolute conclusions about things, you're kind of viewed as not quite as enlightened or as spiritually mature. And I know for a lot of people that might sound kind of odd, but uh, it it really is the kind of situation where you they don't like dogmatic statements of of objective truth. It's very relativistic. And so much like we see in culture, it would be considered offensive to tell someone they're wrong about a belief, a particular belief they might have about God. Yeah. So I, and we're going to get into your story because I know your story tells so much of this in, in a really beautiful way. Um, at, the, at the same time, I'm curious about the statement that you just made of that this idea that like doubt is good, um, that uh, this objective truth is bad. Um <sighs> just seems like such a, like a, a, the postmodern influence, a secular influence of this. Uh, why, why are they maybe, I don't know, maybe not say they, but why, why would people leaning this way be so against making objective truth statements? Well, when, uh, and a part of the answer to this question will have to do with the history of progressive Christianity, which we can trace back to the German scholarship in the late 1800s, early 1900s. But more more specifically with the emergent church, many people might remember the emergent church in the yeah. late 90s, early 2000s. And essentially in the beginning, the emergent church emerged really to uh, a, to reframe Christianity for a postmodern culture. And so many progressive Christians, you know, the emergent church essentially became the progressive church. It's one in the same, just with different titles and just some fresher faces and younger uh, people that are representing it now. But essentially the, the whole um, approach to Christianity is the same as, as emergent Christianity. And so many progressive Christians, uh, you know, if you say you, you're postmodern and 
thought a lot of them will actually admit that they'll say, well, yes, we we believe we're bringing a postmodern correction to the rationalism and the the modernism of the previous era. And so with that, there is a, a highly relativistic uh, view. And so I think one misconception some people have about cr- progressive Christians is that it's just kind of like this hipster Jesus You know, like we're just they're just hipster Jesus that's going along with culture. And I'm sure that's true for some, just like there would be people like that in in the evangelical church that are just going along with things because that's what everybody's doing. But we have to understand, I mean, they have their scholars, they have their philosophers, and there there is a sophisticated uh, view of philosophy in in the uh, progressive church that integrates postmodern theory and relativism uh, into a Christian worldview as sort of a pushback against the more rational uh, modernism that came before. Hmm. Now, so the question came in, and we're kind of addressing it already of, you know, how does progressive Christianity relate to postmodernism? And we're talking about it here. But again, something you said kind of piqued my interest in that I think a lot of the a lot of the comments that we hear, maybe from progressive Christians or people kind of leaning in that way, is this more as you kind of said, hippiness of like, oh, I'm not kind of sure. Let's just all love love everybody and love each other and all roads lead to Jesus or all roads lead to heaven and all this kind of stuff. Um, And also this idea of maybe the more experiential of uh, the feelings that we have about God that is kind of different than what we would say would be the more the theology, the apologetics, the evidence, the reason that is grounded in more of that modernism. And so uh, I guess I'm kind of curious on your view of that, maybe that comparison of, of it's more of the experiential feelings versus the truth. Yeah, and and that is a huge component of progressive Christianity is an emphasis on things like personal feelings, opinions, your the word conscience, your your personal conscience is respected. In fact, um, I know in a minute we're going to get into my story that involves a progressive church that I I ended up in. But after we left years later, when they actually went on to label themselves a progressive church, they took down the Nicene Creed. They took down their previous belief statement, and they replaced it with a new one. And one of the points of their belief statement was that they highly value and respect personal conscience. And so rather than the Bible being the objective authority for truth, uh, that shifts to their their own uh, feelings of their revelation of God. And so, in fact, uh, just to give you an example of this, in her, her book about the Bible, Rachel Held Evans argued that we can take things in the Bible and we can use our God-given conscience to decide which parts are fact, which parts are fiction, which parts are true, which parts are false, which parts essentially are moral and which ones are immoral. And so she argues that God has given us this conscience for that purpose Hmm. so that as we're in relationship with God, we can make that choice even in regards to the Bible. And that our conscience would have more weight than revealed scripture. So if our conscience disagrees with scripture, our conscience has the weight, kind of wins that battle, so to speak. Yeah, they probably wouldn't word it that way. What The way I think they would word it is that having a high view of scripture is going to help you to harmonize those things. So if there, for example, if you see perhaps the Canaanite conquest where God in the, in the text 
God is commanding Israel to go in and wipe out the Canaanites. Well, in the postmodern, more progressive mindset, what they'll do with that is say, okay, well, that wasn't really God talking because the God I know wouldn't do that. Hmm. And so we're going to reinterpret that. They're not going to say, well, you know, my, my conscience trumps that. They're going to say, well, something is intention here. And so the way I'm going to look at that is that wasn't God speaking that was just the writer's best attempt to communicate their beliefs about God at their time and place. But when we look around at the cultures that surrounded them, they were trying to appease their gods in that way. They would go to war and they would credit their God with the wind. So that's just what the Israelites were doing. So they'll harmonize it that way. But the, you'll hear progressives actually say, we have a very high view of scripture. In yeah. fact, I think a lot of progressives believe they have a higher view of scripture than most, let's say, evangelicals. That's really good to point out. Now, um, promise the last question before we get to your story. <laughs> I keep that things just keep oh, popping in my head. Um, is okay. So at the beginning, you talked about this idea of uh, they generally will tend to lean away from making objective truth statements. At the same time, you then said there is some sort of scholarship and there are uh, authorities in this field. So how would they reconcile the authorities and what they say in making true statements about scripture versus this relativistic view of we shouldn't hold on to objective truths? Well, that's a great question. So they're going to rely quite heavily on some of that German scholarship that emerged in the late 1800s, early 1900s, the, the sort of theology, the more liberal theology that arose uh, in, in, you know, 1920 that Jake Gresham Mason was writing against at their time. So a lot of that theology that we saw go into the mainline Protestant denominations, which are now, interestingly, today in decline, it's a lot of the same ideas, but just reinvigorated within the evangelical church. And so I think, um, now I forgot what your question was, though. What did you just ask me? <laughs> kind of the, the, yeah, no, you're good. The, 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 the conflict between scholarship and not wanting to make objective truths. So they're, so they're going to rely on the scholars that essentially are going to help harmonize the conflict they have between their conscience and what they read about in Scripture. And so, uh, you know, it, of course, we can see the contradiction there because— when you when you try to say, well, we're not going to land on any absolutes, or we're going to praise doubt. In fact, I've called it a culture of doubt. I don't. I didn't think of that. I can't remember who came up with that phrase, but it, it is essentially a culture of doubt. So some of this historical criticism, liberation theology, some of these things do help to inform that. And I think what it does too is for a lot of progressive Christians who grew up in the evangelical church and maybe had a bad experience. Some of this scholarship is brand new to them. And so when they when they hear these liberal ideas for the liberal theological ideas for the first time, the historical criticism and some of these things, it it helps, I think, for them to let go of some of the legalism they grew up in, or maybe some hyper fundamentalism that they may have grown up in. And so what's interesting though is that we we know whenever you try to do relativism, it's going to bottom back out into absolutism. And so people like to say, well, it's okay, we don't have to agree, it's not about what we believe, but there really are some core tenets that you would have to hold to, to be a progressive Christian. For example, you would have to be for same-sex marriage. They, hmm. It wouldn't be tolerated, really, to, to be... Uh, in line with the, the historic biblical ethic on marriage. Mm -hmm. And so uh, as much as, as it preaches this sort of relativism and tolerance, it, as we know, that always is going to bottom back out into intolerance and absolutism of just a different sort. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so 
most, I guess, people who get into apologetics is they go off to college, they find some atheist professor that challenges their faith, brings up all these objections, and then they freak out and they find apologetics, they find the intellectual side of Christianity, um, and that is how they get into this. Uh, your story is different. Your story is not with uh, an atheist professor, but someone claiming kind of to be a Christian, at least in some sense. So maybe start off and tell us a little bit about your story and why this topic of pro progressive Christianity is one that you have focused on. That's a great question. And growing up in the church, I had a really good experience with Christianity growing up. I had, again, you know, it wasn't perfect by any means, but the youth pastors I had, the pastors that were in my life, my parents, my youth group friends, um, again, not perfect, but it was, it was a very genuine experience with Christianity. Christians that I knew were people who loved God. They read their Bibles they preached the gospel and they fed the poor and worked with the homeless and and did that kind of ministry. And so I think that I never really had a reason to doubt the truthfulness of what I believed because it worked. And so I had a relationship with Jesus as far back as I can remember. I've loved reading the Bible as far back as I can remember. But I think because of that, I never went through any kind of significant doubt until I was actually an adult. And I, uh, I think you mentioned I was in Zoe Girl for a while, Christian music uh, group. And when Zoe Girl came off the road, I was married by that time and I, I had a baby. And I think for women, that can be a really isolating time of life anyway, when you're, you're home alone with your first child and, and it's just, it's so much work and you just kind of crave this, uh, outside intellectual stimulation. And so my husband and I had started attending a church, um, just a local church here and we really loved it. We connected with the pastor and his intellectual approach to the sermons that my husband and I had never been exposed to ourselves. And so the, the pastor, after about eight months, invited me to be a part of what he called an inner circle type study and discussion group. And he compared it to seminary. He said, if you go through this four-year class, you'll come out the other side with a seminary level education. And that sounded so exciting to me. I, mm -hmm. I thought, we're going to dig deep. We're going to study the Bible. And I'm going to get some intellectual backup for what I've believed my whole life. And so I went to the first class and it was in that class that he revealed he was actually an agnostic, which really took me back because I had been listening to him preach for eight months on Sunday mornings, these amazing sermons that appeared to be faith-filled and, and solid and just so much biblical text. And so it really took me back to hear him say he was agnostic and I couldn't make sense of that. Uh, but I just decided I'm not going to judge it. I'm just, I'm going to go through this class and see what happens. Well, it was in the context of the class that all of the skeptical objections, much like the ones a college kid would hear on a university campus were brought out. We were reading books that came from a more skeptical, uh, place toward historic theology and things along those lines. And it really shook my faith, although while I was in the class, I lasted about four months before my husband and I decided to leave the church. We, we didn't want to raise our daughter there. And um, so I would try to argue with the, the pastor. I would try to debate him as best I could, although I didn't have <laughs> a lot of intellectual backup. Um, but it wasn't until we left the church and I was sort of isolated again, now without a church community, 
that the doubts that he had planted began to take root and grow. And I think you made a really good point where, you know, I did a lot of street ministry growing up with homeless and even street evangelism. So I met a lot of atheists growing up. It wasn't like I grew up in this bubble where I never heard any of that stuff. But I was able to easily dismiss it because I just thought, well, they're atheists. Of course, they're not going to believe the Bible is the word of God. Yeah. Uh, and let's pray for them. And, and you know, I might catch a Discovery Channel special trying to debunk the resurrection. But again, just easy to blow off because they just don't know. They, they haven't met God. They don't know Jesus. But this time, though, when it was a pastor who had spent eight months winning my trust and my respect, I respected him a lot. Um, it was really rattling. And I went through a really dark night of doubt and some deconstruction uh, to the point where I wasn't just doubting what I believed about Christianity or about the Bible, but I mean, does God exist at all? All these feelings I had growing up of feeling the presence of God in church and in a worship service, those goosebumps I would get, that that uh, feeling that I associated with the presence of God. Well, in class, the pastor had explained all of that away as synapses that fire in your brain and response to stimuli to something that makes you feel good. It's a transcendent experience and everybody has those. And it really messed with my head. And I didn't know we had answers to some of the objections that he had brought up. And so I, I cried out to God, just God, if, you, if you're real, if you exist, please help me, send me somebody that can talk to me about some of these questions that this pastor brought up in class. Because honestly, Ryan, I thought he thought of these questions. I did not know that these <laughs> have been discussed and debated for thousands of years. I, I didn't know that. And so it was, uh, it was God, God answered my prayer by sending a various apologists. And I call them lifeboats because I felt like I was drowning in an ocean of doubt. And then, you know, I, I listened to the SES uh, National Conference app and hear Frank Turek say, science doesn't say anything. Scientists do. And it just felt like a lifeboat zooming toward me to help answer some of my questions. And the thing that was so astonishing about it was not so much that we had answers for the questions, but I was so stunned by how robust and rich the answers were to where they actually made the questions look so small. Mm -hmm. And it's like the, the answers dwarfed the questions. I had no idea that we had such robust answers to so many different questions. And it was just exciting to me to for God to rebuild my faith largely through the vehicle of apologetics. Wow. Wow, such a, a crazy, I guess, story, because most people are not uh, expecting to find that within the church. Now, you do make the statement in your book that there are many Christians who are sitting in churches unaware that their church has ad adopted a progressive theology. So I guess I, I got two questions, but the first one here would be kind of what would be some, uh, some language, some signs, some things for people to know, is my church leaning progressive? How would I even know? Yeah, and that's an important question because progressive Christians largely aren't creedal. And what I mean by that is there will be some that will make intellectual assent to the Nicene Creed. They'll even sometimes quote the creed uh, as, as respect to tradition. But 
many progressive Christians will disagree with points in the creed. It's not that they think that they have to agree with them to state them. They'll respect the tradition of it. Um, but some signs to look for, look really closely to how they talk about the Bible in your church. If you hear your pastor or maybe someone in your small group say things like, well, I don't agree with Paul about what he said about women, or I don't agree with Peter when he said this in, in this book, or this Bible verse doesn't resonate with me. Uh, if you hear a sort of a relativistic approach where you, the person's own opinion can trump the Bible. That's, that's a big sign to look out for. If they change the, the, what the text plainly says, for example, if you read through Leviticus over and over again, you'll, you'll read lines like, and the Lord spoke to Moses or God said, and, and then God will go on to say something. If you hear a pastor saying, well, that wasn't really God talking. That was just the writer's best attempt to express what he thought God was like. Uh, that's something to look for. And uh, you're going to look for uh, shifts in their views of things like same-sex marriage and abortion. You're going to look for a uh, an emphasis on more of a social justice gospel. And I want to be careful when I speak this, because right now, you know, a lot of Christians are having discussions about justice and biblical justice, mm-hmm. and those are valuable conversations that we yeah. need to have. And historically, Christians have been the ones in the world that have brought justice to unjust situations. Just look at the abolition movement. It was largely Christian and motivated from a biblical worldview. And so um, I don't I don't want to communicate that doing biblical justice is wrong, or somehow that's not something that's part of being a Christian. But look for a shift in the gospel message, largely being God's redemption of sinful humans, when that gets pushed aside in favor of more of a secular definition of social justice, which of course is going to run along the lines of uh, gay rights and gay marriage and uh, what you'll hear even called reproductive justice, which is just a fancy way of saying pro-abortion, things like that. And so you're going to look for that kind of of language where they're not preaching that core gospel message of I, I, you're a sinner and you need to, to be justified before God by putting your trust and your faith in Jesus. When that gets pushed aside, that's something to look for. Look for the atonement being framed as cosmic child abuse. This is a huge theme in the yeah. progressive church where the idea that God required the blood sacrifice of his son, uh, that turns God into a divine abuser and that's not right. And so you'll you'll be looking for things like that. And just again, be looking for this relativistic approach of feelings trumping uh, biblical authority and, and biblical truth. So in that situation, okay, I'm a person, I'm going to church and I start to kind of hear these things. Uh, what would be your advice as far as trying to have conversations and affect some change within the church as uh, versus, I guess, in your story, you and your husband, your family left the church? Um, is there a, is that a kind of a case by case basis of what to do? Or is there kind of some wisdom that you have to speak into what people should do when they start to see themselves in that situation? Yeah, this is the number one question that I get through every platform where people, <laughs> and it's a tough question because 
The problem is, is that usually progressive Christianity coming into a church is going to be a very slow drift. So it may start with a, a women's group doing a study of a progressive woman's book, and maybe the pastor's not even aware of what's yeah. going on in the smaller group. There, there can be all kinds of like death by a thousand paper cuts kind of idea where it could be happening on the small group level and the and the pastors aren't even aware. Or there may be a new hire, a newly hired pastor that starts bringing in some new ideas and people are kind of scratching their heads and they're saying, well, I don't want to judge. And so it's it, it, you don't want to be that guy, right? You don't want to be the one to start squawking about things because you're going to be labeled as judgmental. And so here's what I would advise you. If you're unsure, I'm going to give you a piece of advice that a friend of mine did at a church that was going progressive. Um, she was not sure. She, she had red flags, but she couldn't put her finger on it. So for a year, she kept a journal. And every time the pastor said something that sent up a red flag, she wrote it down. And after a year, she looked back and went, oh, my goodness. And she saw so very clearly that the church had gone off the rails. That's a great piece of advice. Just start taking notes, taking note of what's being said and how things are being framed, because we forget so easily. But if you write it down, it's easy to go back and document those things. Uh, that would be if you're unsure. If you're more sure, there are some serious red flags in this church. I would just urge you to speak up. Make a make an appointment with your pastor. Share your concerns. Share uh, what you've heard that is concerning to you from a biblical perspective, and speak up because the drift uh, will will continue if nobody speaks up. And it may be that that you will have to leave the church. And again, that's a case by case basis. That it, it's going to depend on a Christian's maturity level and what they believe God's calling them to do. I have friends that stayed in churches for a long time trying to fight for orthodoxy and others hmm. left sooner. And so that's going to be a decision that you'll have to make. But at, at the very least, start documenting things so that you, even for your own sake, you can go back and say, yeah, this is off or speak up if you do see it. That's very important. We have to. That's such good advice. And I, and I love the, the comment about um, speaking to the pastor. I think that, look, we should be able to have kind of that relationship with the pastor of, hey, meet me for coffee yeah. and really see if, if, if that pastor is leading the church, you'll get an idea of where the church is going, of if the pastor's okay with it, if not. And that I think will also like, hey, the pastor's against this. Awesome. He's aware of it now. Let's see how the church handles it versus the pastor might be leading this charge. Okay, that's a problem that might be yeah. a little bit different here. Now, uh, I think one important term that we haven't really discussed yet in the progressive kind of movement is this idea of deconstruction. Now, I probably got this first presented to me, I think it was two maybe years ago, and I did this whole show on deconstructionism before I was maybe uh, really aware of what's going on here. So maybe could you briefly define, uh, if people hear this idea of deconstructing the faith, what, what is that discussing? Well, there's a philosophical term uh, having to do with deconstruction that I think people get mixed up on what the word means. I think when people are using it in the larger uh, Christian culture, uh, they don't realize the postmodern implications that the word carries from philosophy. So it has to actually do with redefining what words actually mean. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm sitting in a chair right now, but I could deconstruct the meaning of what a chair is to the point where I could convince you that this is actually not a chair. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, you can do that with anything. And so I think that 
What people mean by it, though, generally speaking, is they're they're talking about taking their beliefs that they've always held, sort of picking them apart, deciding what they think is true and what's not true, and you know discarding the beliefs that they think are not true. The problem with the whole sort of um, movement, really, of deconstruction is that it's viewed as a good. It's like deconstruction is viewed as a mature. Uh, thing for a Christian to go through. Like if you haven't gone through deconstruction, you, you haven't really examined your faith. You don't really know what mature Christian faith is. And I think that's a very dangerous idea. I think it's good for Christians to experience some doubt, to have to dig for truth for their faith. But generally speaking, when people are deconstructing, often they're, they're viewing that as a part of their maturation process. And I don't think it has to be. I think that you know, in fact, take my dad for perf- as a perfect example. He went through all kinds of w- religions and philosophies to get to Christianity. I mean, his construction was was by examining all of these other things and deciding the gospel is where it's at. This is what's real. And so there was nothing to deconstruct in his case. But I think we have a generation of kids that grew up uh, in a particular iteration of evangelical culture in which they weren't giving, given a lot of spiritual meat. They weren't given a lot of really good sound theology. Uh, they certainly weren't given apologetics. And so as the culture becomes more skeptical, they're going, well, wait a second, I don't know if I actually think this is true. And so I think that our own, for each person maybe listening or watching this, it's good for us to examine our own motives of why we're doing this. If if you're taking your beliefs and examining them and going, why do I believe this is true? Do I believe this is true? I think that's wonderful. I think that's a very good thing and a good part of spiritual maturation. But if you're viewing this through the postmodern vehicle of agnosticism, agnosticism almost being the highest good, so mm-hmm. I'm going to do this deconstruction, I think that can be, of course, very spiritually dangerous. I think that's such a great point because I think often we hear this idea of deconstructing, of trying to maybe figure out, did we put all the pieces in the right place and realizing, I mean, when I got into college and I really started going, okay, what did my church teach me? What did my parents teach me? What do I think scripture actually says? There are things that's like, you know, I don't think that's actually true. And you mentioned that in the book of, you know, dropping some of the not so biblical ideas from our faith and that being a good thing. Uh, The problem is maybe, and we'll talk about this at the end, is like, are we what are we dropping out? What are those core foundational principles? And before I get to that, I want to ask this question of, um, I guess I have two questions here that kind of respond to each other of of what do we do in the church? And so you talked about the church, maybe not giving the truth, uh, giving the meat, uh, the apologetics in that sense. And so as a pastor, maybe if there's a pastor, a leader, a teacher watching, um, should they maybe be uh, preaching against progressive Christianity uh, publicly? Or is it more of, I want to put an emphasis on truth and apologetics and theology, and hopefully that will make my congregants aware. So when they hear bad theology, they recognize it, or is it actually speaking out against it? Well, I, that's a good question. I, I hope that pastors would call it out and call it what it is, because one of the responses I've gotten just overwhelmingly, what people will tell me is, I saw this everywhere, but I didn't know what it was called. Hmm. Uh, and you know, you've given me language for this now. And so I think it would be really helpful for pastors to give language 
to what their congregants are encountering on social media and in popular Christian books. Uh, And this is the thing I think a lot of pastors don't realize, is that especially the women, progressive women thought leaders, have some of the biggest platforms out there. Um, People like Jen Hatmaker, Glennon Doyle, Rachel Hollis, they have close to or over a million followers each. This is not just some sort of thing that's hanging out on the fringes. This is something that I guarantee you, if there are pastors watching this, your women are having to deal with this all the time from their friends and from uh, their the social media accounts they follow. This is a very real thing that's in our faces all the time. And so I think um, when pastors realize that, I do think it would be incredibly beneficial to touch on it Maybe how you would other cult movements or or things like that or other false gospels that might come about. But I also think if you're teaching through the Bible verse by verse and you're doing expositional preaching and you're you're doing some apologetics, you will probably by default be guarding your congregation against this because it was the apologists who helped me because so many of the same claims that the progressive Christians were making are the same claims atheists make. So I, I think, you know, each, each church needs and each pastor and elder board and all of these things need to decide these things for themselves. Of course, I'd love it if they would address it uh, by name. But I do think, man, preaching through the Bible is is the number one way to keep all of this stuff out of the doors of your church. Yeah, that's so good. Now, um, going along with this is um, you mentioned in your book, and I, and I liked this comment, uh, you said uh, you talked about the Gnostic Gospels. And then you said, you know, Gnostic Jesus certainly wasn't someone my teachers made flannel graphs about uh, during Sunday school. And I grew up, uh, we had a flannel graph under our couch in our living room, even though I'm, I'm not, you know. And, and so <laughs> this idea like, okay, and, and I just received a question today uh, from someone who has a two-year-old. And I think that they said they would be watching this and saying, okay, how can I start training my two-year-old uh, in things of Christianity? And so I guess my question is, um, how do we maybe, or how young should this start? And how do we start to help our young kids, our, our junior high, high school, even elementary kids start to understand the true Jesus? How do we present Gnostic Jesus? How do we talk about this in church? Well, that's a really great question. Um, I don't think you have to teach your kids about Gnostic Jesus. And I can tell you that from personal experience, because I had read the gospel so much throughout my life, I knew the real Jesus of scripture. So when I, as an adult, encountered Gnostic Jesus, it was so obvious that this was a different person than the Jesus of the four gospels. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, that is probably the primary thing is you just want to give your kids the real thing to start with. You don't have to start teaching them about all the false movements. You got to just teach them the real thing. And a huge part of that, I would say maybe a two-pronged approach. This is at least what I do with my kids or what I try try to do. Number one, biblical literacy. So reading through the scriptures with your kids, whether they understand every nuance or not, just get it in their bones, start reading through it. Um, I took three months and just read through the gospels every night with my kids. And we would read the Hobbit, but I'd read a couple chapters of one of the gospels and then we'd read the hobbit and so make you know do some fun and 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 my kids honestly my son now he'll he'll be like can you read me the bible tonight and so just even if you're not doing explanation a lot of explanation just getting the information of what's in the bible into their bones so that they have that biblical literacy would 
be the first thing. And the second thing I, I think is incredibly important is to engage their questions and, be, and make your home a welcoming environment for their questions. This is so, so, so important because I've heard so many stories from people who ended up swayed by progressive Christianity who grew up in environments where they didn't think they could ask their questions. And if they had a scary question, um, they were responded to with fear or their pastor or their parents said, well, we don't ask those questions here or just have faith or because the Bible says so. And so I think it's really important that when our kids have a question about God, that even if we don't know the answer, resist every impetus to react in fear and just praise them for asking such a good question. I mean, my kids ask me the most terrifying questions sometimes. <laughs> and I, every time I try to go, what an amazing and thoughtful yeah. question. And if I don't know the answer, that's fine. I don't have to know the answer, but I can say, you know what, let's investigate that together because I want to know that too. That's a really good question. And just to continue to open the door, because if we can, and this is a point that Brett Kunkel and John Stone Street made in their book, A Practical Guide to Culture. Uh, and I think it was a brilliant point is that if you make yourself the expert in your kid's life, they will come to you with their questions. Otherwise, they're going to go to Google. And we yeah. all know that that can be bad news. So I would say yeah. those two things would be just, and that's something all of us as Christian parents, whether we know apologetics or not, start studying apologetics based on your kid's questions. Take the, invite, just invite that environment. Say, what's your biggest question about God? You might be surprised what they come up with. <laughs> Yeah, man, this is just so, so good because I'm just thinking through some of these thoughts that you're sharing of, of that, yeah, it, it, I want people to come to me and it's not because I think I'm awesome and I have all the answers, but it feels like when my students come to me with questions because I don't have kids, uh, I, but I got 95 of them right now that I'm trying to teach. Um, <laughs> when they come to me with questions, it's like, look, they could have gone to Google. They could have gone somewhere else. They see me as someone that they respect at least, but also like, I'm glad because- I want to give them a thoughtful, well-rounded answer. It's not just just to give them the biased Christian answer, uh, yeah. but they can go anywhere. And so I want them to go to trusted sources, if it's not me, to someone else. Now, um, you mentioned some of the maybe progressive Christian um, people, I guess, that are out there. And I got a question a little while ago uh, when I had an interview with uh, Christopher Yuan from about Jen Hatmaker that came in. But you also mentioned Rachel Hollis. And I know that she wrote the books, Girl, Wash Your Face and Girl, Stop Apologizing. You wrote a blog in response to Girl, Wash Your Face that received, I think, over a million views, uh, very well received and shared. Um, what would be kind of maybe your comments or maybe your... Uh, I guess, analysis of her books and maybe Christians who do appreciate maybe what she has to say. Yeah. Well, and I can, you know, I mentioned three names, Rachel Hollis and Jen Hatmaker and Glennon Doyle, and these, they all are preaching the same message. And it's the same message that Rachel Hollis was teaching in Girl, Wash Your Face. And that's this idea that it's really all about you. It's about becoming more self-aware, doing better self-care, putting yourself first. Uh, you know, all of the things actually that scripture tells us not to do, it, it's this, it, and, but it feels good. I think women read these books and they're told, you know what? Sister, you're enough. You don't have to. Uh, you don't have to put your own desires and dreams and wants aside uh, to be a good mom. You don't have to. You can still pursue your dreams and and have that that career you've always wanted. You can have it all, but you got to put yourself in your. Uh, you got to put yourself first. In fact, Rachel Hollis said it outright. You have to be the very first 
of your priorities. Well, of course, from a biblical standpoint, we know that this is absolutely antithetical to the gospel, where Jesus says you actually have to deny yourself and pick up the cross and follow him. And so I think this message is is terrifying. We see this in invading mops, you know, which is a huge uh, organization that's aimed at young mothers where they're getting this message of you just need to get a higher self-esteem. You just need to put yourself first. You're enough. And and then the gospel message is either put to the side or or put away altogether, which is really the cure for all the things that are wrong with us. But interestingly, even in Glennon Doyle's book, she argues that one of the the reasons she decided to leave her husband and marry her uh, into a lesbian marriage relationship with Abby Wambach was the idea that she wanted to model what it is like for her kids. She wanted them to see her put herself first because that's what she wanted to model for them. And she argued that's actually making her a good mom. And so, I I mean, I know that for a lot of Christians that might sound shocking, but this is the message that has fully infiltrated that world and is being promoted and praised in that that world. And it's coming into so many churches. So with this kind of message creeping into churches, I I wonder if there's anyone watching or that will watch uh, at some point that is maybe, uh, I guess, somewhat unaware um, of or what positions, I guess, are being taken. And mm-hmm. so kind of what would be your encouragement to someone who is maybe starting this journey uh, to, I don't know, I guess, come back in some sense to a historic Christian view? Well, my advice would be to look at how you're defining Christian. Maybe start there. Uh, ask yourself, what is, what is a Christian? And if your definition of Christianity contradicts Jesus and the apostles' definition, well, then it's not Christianity. You you know, that's fine if that's what you believe, but call it something else. Because this is a journey I went on and I document in the book, going back to find out what is Christianity? What initially was it, going back to early creeds that predate even the New Testament material, what did the earliest Christians think they were preaching? What was their gospel message? And compare that to what you think the gospel message is. And if those things aren't lining up, well, then what you're believing is not Christianity. And so I think I would start there. Start with a meaningful definition of Christianity. Go back to the creed in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, can, Can you, along with those earliest Christians, say that Jesus died for my sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised in accordance with the scriptures? If you can't fully affirm even that early uh, creed, you know, there, there is a definition problem of what we're calling the gospel and what we're calling Christianity. So what would you say then are the core tenets, the core fundamental doctrines of Christianity that someone needs to believe in order to be considered a Christian and kind of be saved in, in that sense? Well, I, I did mention that creed. So I think that's where you start. You go there because even the most skeptical and even atheist scholars are going to tell you that this creed is about three years after Jesus' death. And the earliest Christians, and Paul said, this is of first importance. And so you have that Jesus died. Notice they give a reason. Jesus died not just for speaking truth to power, not to just show the way of forgiveness for people, not to model the love of God, but to die for our sins. So right there in that earliest creed, you have this the seedbed, essentially, of what would become known as substitutionary atonement. The idea that in some meaningful sense, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was a sacrifice in my place. He he did something I couldn't do for myself to solve the sin problem, right? Even at the very most rudimentary iteration, it, it's got to be at least that. 
And then twice you have in accordance with the scripture. So it's very clear that the earliest Christians viewed the Old Testament scriptures as fully authoritative. This was the word of God to them that prophesied this Jewish Messiah. The physical resurrection is in that creed. Uh, these these are this, Christianity certainly is a lot more than that, but it can't be any less than that. And in the last chapter of my book, I go through uh, and I follow Norm Geisler on this. So I would recommend looking up his lecture on YouTube also, or you could get his uh, systematic theology that he fleshes this out a little bit more. But he he narrows it down to eight things, and they all have to do with very basic things that Christians would all believe. Um, the nature, the dual nature of Jesus, the Trinity, um, the atonement, things like this. So there are things that uh, and I, I go into this in the book a little bit that you have to, you would have to believe to call yourself a Christian, but there are other things that are essential that you may not be aware of, but they're logically necessary for the gospel to be true. So someone could put saving faith in Jesus and maybe never have been told the, a full orbed view of the Trinity, um, so that would be logically necessary for salvation to be possible. But then they would learn about the Trinity, right? The thief on the cross, if he would have lived, he would have gone on to learn more about God and and just, and he would have affirmed the Trinity along with, you know, the rest of us Christians today. So there would be things that you wouldn't be able to deny, but you they are logically necessary in the sense that, you know, you can put your saving faith in Jesus without having knowledge of everything. Yeah. But there are things that are implicit in doing that. And and so I, I flesh that out a little bit in my in the twelfth chapter of my book. Yeah, and that's good to, to point out this idea of, like, you don't have to have all your theology ironed out in order to be saved. But as you begin to learn and grow deeper in Christianity, you begin to reject some of the core fundamental doctrines. That is where we get into yeah. some of those issues. Now, I, I'm curious because, like, for example, I know you uh, you had a conversation with Lisa Gungor on the Unbelievable podcast a while back. Um, I don't know if you would put her in the progressive camp as well. Yeah, uh, definitely. They, the liturgist podcast and that liturgist movement is what she and her husband have sort of spearheaded along with some others. And yes, very much in the progressive stream, although I would say they're even a bit further to where, uh, I've heard Lisa in her conversation with me, she said she still does identify as a Christian, although I've heard her in other interviews say that she doesn't. So I think um, it's it's very open to interpretation. But yeah, I would okay. definitely, in fact, most progressive Christians would, would say that they follow the liturgist, they're part of that community. Okay. So she said something, I'm just curious, and, and if you've had more conversation with, uh, with progressives and how they would respond to this, and that she said something like to the effect of that um, kind of all religions lead to the same well of God. Uh, kind of this kind of all roads lead to God. Yet Jesus clearly says, like, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so are they saying that Jesus was wrong? Uh, do we have uh, the wrong mistaken view of Jesus? Uh, that's an error in Scripture. How do they reconcile this very clear teaching? And it's not just in Christianity. On Saturday, I ran into a Muslim at the Irvine Spectrum who was trying to prove to me that I have created shirk, the, the unforgivable sin of Islam, and that, that I have elevated Jesus as an equal to God, and that I have committed the unforgivable sin. So Islam clearly says, we are the only right way. You Christians cannot be saved. And so I'm just curious, uh, you know, when it comes more specifically back to Christianity and Jesus, how, how do they make these comments of all roads lead to God, yet at the same time, I'm a Christian and I believe what Jesus had to say? That's a great question. And so there there are sort of, as far as I can tell and as far as I can see in my research, there are sort of two different answers in the progressive church to that question. So largely speaking, zooming out to an, um, you know, a helicopter view, uh, most 
progressive Christians are in some sense universalists. Some might call themselves Christocentric universalists or universal reconciliationists, where they would say, yes, Jesus is the only way. But when he saved the world, he saved everyone. And so the Hindu, the Buddhist, the Muslim, we're we're not going to tell them they're wrong because they're also saved through Jesus. So that would be maybe one answer that a lot of different progressives might give. Another answer uh, would come more from the Richard Rohr camp, who many progressives view him as a spiritual mentor, a spiritual father. He's had a incalculably profound, I don't know if that wor- those words work together, incalculably profound influence on progressive Christianity Richard Rohr has. And he's openly a perennialist in which he would say, uh, Jesus is not the only way. In fact, all religions have the same source. They're all coming from the same divine source. They're seeing God from different angles, but we're all essentially going to the same place. And so he calls himself a Christian perennialist to where he's going to to uh, explore God from what he would call the Christian tradition. But uh, all he he's like, there's no need for salvation. Everybody's saved. It's not, you know, we don't have to worry about any of that. So we can learn from all of these different religious traditions to try to get a full picture of God. And so I think those are probably the two main answers that you'd find in the progressive church to that question. It just it, That idea blows my mind of this saying, oh, we're all saying the same God from different angles, yet they're logically contradictory views of who God is. And, and yeah. it's just a simple thing. It's like, if you say this man is six foot five and another, and then another one says, no, he's five foot 10, that's not just saying the same person from different angles. Someone is wrong. Yeah. Uh, yet we have this idea. Now, I guess uh, a lot of this stems from, I think, in kind of going back to this postmodernism of one of the things that I talk about and how this idea of relativism undermines our students' faith in Christ is this kind of this ethic that that the younger generation has adopted that one of the worst things that you can do is offend someone. Uh, mm. to, to tell them that they're wrong. In fact, you know, I think I can forget the study that Barna put out, but it's like, in fact, you know, a lot of people say, if you, uh, if what you say hurts someone's feelings, then you're the wrong one. Just because you hurt yeah. their feelings. Yeah. It's, so much it, of it stems it, from that. Yeah. So in, in Jen Hatmaker's latest book that I just reviewed and I did a podcast on it, it's called Fierce, Free and Full of Fire. And she actually says in the book that truth is determined based on how it makes other people feel. Or she says, that's how I determine truth. She says, any teaching, any doctrine that according to her standards, I suppose, cause harm or uh, any kind of depression or bad feelings, we're going to reject that. In fact, she, she even has a quote in the book where she says, she so relativizes truth that she says truth is actually, she says truth is super pumped about what you love. So what you love is defined as truth in her mind. So all of these words get makeovers. The word love gets made over. The word truth gets made over. And uh, so so some, like, like Jen Hatmaker, will openly say absolutely truth is determined by our feelings. Uh, because if it makes you feel bad, it can't, it can't be true, or it's at least not something we should affirm. So, so, so yeah, there's a lot of that. What if, her, what, uh, what if her new book makes me feel bad? I know. Would she I, then say that sh- what she's saying is false? Yeah, because it didn't make me feel great. I'll tell you that, <laughs> having to read that. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, I know. And these are the kinds of questions I think that 
um, are probably the ones that that aren't that welcome in that in that world for a movement that prides themselves on being so welcoming to questions and skepticism and doubt and all of these things. Um, expressing skepticism against the skepticism is not very welcome, and that's really considered again as less mature spiritually. You just haven't had your in moment of enlightenment yet. Yeah. And and the thing too that we have to bear in mind that I haven't mentioned yet in this in this discussion is that a lot of the ideas that are informing some of progressive Christianity are really coming from the new age. And so you have a lot of overlap between new age views of sin, new age views of Jesus. You have a lot of overlap with uh, that and with the progressive Christian views of some of these things. And so in the new age, it's so relativistic and these words get made over in virtually in the same way in the progressive church. Yeah. I think, to me, it's interesting because it seems like what they're saying is that there are no core doctrines, there are no core kind of fundamental beliefs. Uh, you follow your feelings, but your feelings are true so long as they line up as X. Um, but then X is never defined. And so if I say, well, I read your book and I feel bad, well, your feelings aren't accurate. My feelings are accurate. Well, yeah. by what standard are we judging our feelings of accurate and inaccurate? Well, there is no standard. Well, it's just, you yeah. know, so it's almost like it's it's... It's presupposing that there is a standard by which we can judge our feelings while at the same time saying, be skeptical of everything. There is no standard. Um, yeah. Okay, a couple of questions kind of came in uh, as far as, uh, I guess, individual people. Uh, the first one was, um, did you mention Beth Moore? Does she have any relationship to the topic? Uh, I don't think at this point she does. The With Beth Moore, Beth Moore, I would put, um, in fact, I've kind of defended her in the past because I don't see her capitulating on core essential doctrines of the gospel. Now, again, I, I don't do, I haven't done a deep dive on Beth Moore. Um, I know that she disagrees with a lot of progressive theology and with some of her friends who are progressive. I think um, the thing I was really disappointed to see was that she did go on Jen Hatmaker's podcast. Other high profile evangelicals did as well as a part of a series that Jen Hatmaker did. And I found that incredibly disappointing. In fact, when Max Lucado, who was the first one, went on her podcast, I wrote a blog post about the the impact of that and how I believe that was really wrong of him to do. I think it was wrong of Beth Moore to go on there. Um, Now, I'm not saying you can never have good discussions with someone you disagree with, but to go on almost as an endorsement, Hmm. I think was very damaging to the body of Christ. And I I really wish that they wouldn't have done that. Uh, But as far as I can tell, Beth Moore still holds to historic uh, sexuality, despite a lot of people have tried to say she doesn't, but I've researched that for myself and I haven't seen any evidence that she's changed on that. Um, So I don't think Beth Moore is progressive. I think she's progressive friendly probably, um, which can be very confusing. I think that um, when people like Beth Moore are, uh, seem to be endorsing progressive leaders, calling them brothers and sisters in Christ, when essentially these other people are preaching a different gospel, I think it can be incredibly damaging, incredibly confusing to, to Christians. But at this point, no, I wouldn't call Beth Moore progressive herself. Okay, that's good. Um, next question that came in for you is, is there any association uh, between prosperity gospel and the progressive Christianity? Just curious about that. Oh, interesting. I do think they're distinct movements. I think they're, uh, in fact, a lot of progressive Christians will critique the prosperity gospel. Uh, but interestingly, with some of the more self-help type messages that get promoted, um, there is a little similarity there. But in its classic iteration, I, progressives would actually be critical of the prosperity gospel. 
Wonderful. So good. So we, we just have a few more minutes left together. And I'm just, you know, we talked about deconstructing and people trying to shift and uh, the Christian core kind of Christian historic values uh, and, and beliefs about Jesus and miracles and God and the truth of Christianity and the exclusivity of Christianity and all that kind of stuff that goes along with uh, the truth of Christianity and the other worldviews that are trying to, you know, come against it. Um, the last kind of part of your book, you talk about this idea of reconstruction. Um, can you kind of maybe lay out for us what would reconstruction look like? Yeah, because we hear so much about deconstruction as if that's the highest good. But I don't think you should deconstruct something unless you're going to reconstruct something better in its place and something more true. You want to line, we all want to line up what we think about the world with what's actually true about the world. And so I, I, walk the reader in my book through my journey of reconstruction, which started with sort of, uh, I didn't touch on this too much in the book because I, I wanted to move on quickly, but it started with arguments for the existence of God and moving into the truthfulness of Christianity. And then my book sort of picks up with what is Christianity? What is historic Christianity? And so I think a, a, a good, you could almost view this book as a reconstruction guide. It's going to walk you through what the earliest Christians defined themselves as, what did they believe? Um, how did we get the Bible? How do we know we have the right books of the Bible? How do we know we have an accurate copy? How do we know that they told the truth, especially in regard to the Gospels and the story of Jesus? And so I walk the reader through uh, a lot of that stuff, and we talk through some progressive uh sort of traps to avoid and some of the doctrines that they've brought in that they're claiming are historic, but I, I believe, I hope that I showed in the book that they're not. And so, um, I think as far as reconstruction goes, what you want to do is reconstruct the real thing, yeah. despite whatever sort of stream of Christianity that each of us grew up in, we want to get the real thing right. And so, like you mentioned, there was some painful things for me that I had to, uh, cut away from my belief because I realized they weren't biblical beliefs. They had gone beyond scripture. They had become um, very almost relativistic. And some of those were really painful because I had such good feelings associated with them. Yeah. And and so I would just encourage each of us to just really search after truth, even if you have to give up something that you are holding so tightly. Um, I promise that what Jesus will put in its place will be so much more fulfilling and will give you so much more lasting peace and joy than than what you thought you had before. And I, I certainly have experienced that to be true in my life. Wow. That is, I think, a beautiful place to end. And they, they had, sometimes we're so nervous we're, uh, of, of, what if I give this up? What will be different in recognizing the truth of Christianity, that Jesus is worth it. He is beautiful. He is good. Uh, and it will be better in the end. It is more fulfilling. And that's a beautiful place to end there. Alisa, thank you for this. Your book comes out soon. I know uh, next week. So I know you're doing kind of some pre-orders and stuff. Kind of let the yeah. I guess, let those listening, what, what can they kind of look forward to if they pre-order it or, or other things you have going on in the next week before it comes out? Yeah, thank you for asking that. So if, if you're interested in getting the book, I really want to encourage you to pre-order it. And the reason we're really pushing for pre-orders is because when uh, certain retailers have quite a few pre-orders, 
they're going to make bigger orders. It's going to get in front of the eyes of more people. And I just want to get the word out about this book to as many people as possible. So to sort of give you a reward for pre-ordering between any time you've pre-ordered until October 6th at midnight, um, you're going to get the first two chapters early. In fact, those two chapters are going out tomorrow. So when you pre-order the book, you'll virtually get the, you'll get to start reading it just about right away. And then the second bonus you're going to get is access to a private Facebook group where uh, we're going to walk through the book together over six weeks. We're going to read it together. We're going to do weekly live streams where I'm going to talk through the chapter. We'll take questions. And the the Facebook group is already live and we've got about 800 people in there right now. And it is so fun. I can't tell you how many people have made comments like, oh my gosh, I found a community of like-minded people that have the same concerns I do about this. And so people are sharing information. We even had uh, two ladies meet up for lunch that met in the group. You guys, it's so great. And I want to get you in the group. So you can do that by going to elisachilders.com slash another gospel. You can pre-order it. Keep your receipt number because as you fill out the form, it's going to take you to the Facebook page and you'll have to put your receipt number to be admitted into the Facebook group. You won't be admitted without that. So make sure you grab that. But we'd love to, to have you in the group. Wonderful. And I think uh, the link to that is below in the description to uh, the book, your book page on your website, as well as your podcast and your YouTube channel or the other resources where people can go get more information and see uh, what you're doing here in the future. Thank you so much. All right. Wonderful. And one question came in. Are, are you shipping books to Germany? <laughs> well, I, you know, somebody <laughs> probably is. Uh, yeah. you can, I don't know if Amazon ships to Germany, but on that, that web, that land, Ending page, elisachilders.com slash another gospel. There's a lot of buttons for retailers. You could check some of those retailers and see if they're if they'll ship a book out there. I'm sure, I'm awesome. sure you can. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for taking this time and chatting with me today. Thanks, Ryan. It was great. All right, everybody. I hope that you have enjoyed this conversation. Uh, again, go pick up the, the book. See the links below for more information. Also, you got to follow on social media because I haven't announced any of the interviews coming up in October. The schedule is still being set. And so you can look at social media, Instagram and Twitter for more information there on what's coming up in the coming weeks. Again, in the corners, you can subscribe to my channel as well as Elisa's channel. And then if you're watching after the fact, always there are videos that pop up in the corners. So guys, thank you so much for watching. Hopefully this helps you to think more deeply about Christianity, the Christian truths, and historic Christianity, the true gospel. Be defenders of it. And thank you guys so much for watching. Have a blessed rest of your day. Bye, everybody. Just